Good evening, everyone. My name's Stuart, in case you haven't met me, and I'm going to be leading us tonight as we look at uh, God's Word and some other things. As you can see, we're doing the Jesus Is theme in our sermons uh, this term, and uh, we've looked at a number of these already, but today it's Jesus Is a Fairy Tale. And I want to say straight up that Jesus is no fairy tale. And I'll tell you why. Because Colin Buchanan says so. Let's hear what Colin has to say. stop him there <laughs> and some of us uh, that's why we think that uh, Jesus is no fairy tale because somewhere we learned it in a song or in Sunday school or kids club someone said the Bible's true and we know it's true but in our skeptic world nowadays uh, that's not really enough when someone says how do you know the Bible's true and it's not made up or how do you know that Jesus really existed you can't give the answer because you can't even actually give the answer because it's in the Bible how do you know it's true in the Bible? Because the Bible says it's true. You end up with a little bit of a circular argument at times. Uh, sometimes this takes different forms when people talk to you. Some say Jesus is real in the sense that he exists for those who want him to exist, a little bit like Santa Claus. If you'd like to believe in him, then he's real for you. Uh, Jesus is a legend like King Arthur or um, Robin Hood. Jesus is an enlightened being, maybe an alien who's come down to earth for a while and then disappeared again. Or Jesus is just a fairy tale for grown-ups. It's our crutch. Uh, now, they're, they're interesting questions and interesting statements, and I think they're worth answering, but we can't do justice to all of them tonight. So we're just going to tackle a couple of those and see what is being said. A few points to make before we jump in. I want to say that... Uh, Christianity, unlike most other religions, invites this type of questioning. Those kinds of questions that say, uh, how do we know the Bible's true? Uh, when was it written? What about that time gap between when Jesus lived and when the first Gospels appeared? Wasn't it changed over that time? Uh, did the scribes manipulate the material and change the words to suit themselves? So these are the sorts of questions that we're, we're going to, uh, to look at. But Christianity says what we're reading is history. Now, I'm going to give you an example. Um, when the Da Vinci Code came out uh, some years ago, um, I think it was about 15 years ago now, it's quite a long time, uh, if you're watching TV on a Good Friday uh, night, you might find a film about Jesus and the blonde-haired, blue-eyed Jesus is speaking perfect English. And uh, that was just the norm. After the Da Vinci Code, uh, the sorts of films you're getting, especially on ABC, SBS, might have been documentaries about, oh, was Jesus real? 
or uh, Jesus was married, or Jesus' bones have been found. And scepticism and intrigue invaded our screens. And the sorts of questions that we were asking uh, had changed from theology questions to questions of historicity. So let's have a look at some of those questions and see if we can jump in and answer them. Christianity, like most religions, just likes this kind of questioning. Most religions don't sorry, most religions don't like this type of questioning. A Hinduism is based on a, an idea that there is a, a life force called Brahman, and we can be one with Brahman like it's a fire with little flickers going off, and we're the flickers and we come back to the life force. Uh, Buddhists believe that we can get rid of the self and we can get rid of suffering. And um, those of the Islam faith centre on the nature and practice of Islam. But the New Testament centres on events that took place over a 33-year period in the land of Palestine. Real events and things that happened. Now, let me see if I've got a slide that'll put you in the picture. Here's Luke speaking as he writes his Gospel, chapter 3. Notice the way Luke describes what's happening here in history. His, his main theme is uh, John was son of Zechariah the priest, but look at the way he couches it. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, there's one historical character, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod Tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip Tetrarch of Eturia and Traconius and Licinius Tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John the son of Zechariah. See how that, all those lines intersect? Luke is not saying, well, I once heard a story about Jesus. He's saying, in history, this is when this happened. And you can pinpoint it to a time, a place, and a geographical location. Well, regardless of their religious persuasions, most historians believe that Jesus was a real person. It's not the minority that rules here. The majority say Jesus was real. If you go to any library, say Macquarie University Library, um, you'll find more articles about Jesus than you will about Julius Caesar and Alexander the Great combined. So historians take Jesus seriously. We also have to remember that when we're dealing with um, history, it's a different way of looking at things. People often ask for scientific proof for something to be true, thinking that's the only way you can prove something. But uh, when we're looking at the New Testament documents, we're looking at uh, history and the way history deals with things. And it's more like legal evidence, proving something beyond reasonable doubt. So there's so much support for the evidence that to doubt it is to be unreasonable. So you look at the evidence, you weigh it up and say, well, the majority of scholars think this, and only three or four think that, so the majority, let's go with them. We haven't got 100% because people are always going to disagree about things, but majority rules. Now, with all this in mind, let's have a look at some of these questions that have been raised. Uh, the first one is this. Some say you can't believe in Jesus because all the information we have comes from the New Testament. They're all biased. They all got together and they made it up. And no one else in history writes about Jesus. Uh, there's no other, other records at all. Well, simply, that's just not true. And I'll give you some reasons why. 60 AD, the Roman historian Tacitus recorded a major fire broke out in Rome. Christians were blamed for starting the fire. And so he tells his readers where Christians came from. Now, Tacitus is no Christian. He's a pagan writer. 
But have a look at what he writes. Christians derive their name from a man called Christ, who during the reign of the Emperor Tiberius had been executed by a sentence of the procurator Pontius Pilate. The deadly superstition thus checked for the moment broke out afresh, not only in Judea, the first source of the evil, but also in the city of Rome. So Tacitus tells us that there was a man called Christ under the reign of the Emperor Tiberius and in the, uh, executed by Pontius Pilate. Wow. For someone who didn't know Jesus very well, he's got it fairly accurate, hasn't he? Uh, if we go to another uh, historian, uh, this time let's have a look at a guy called uh, Pliny who was uh, in northern Turkey about 40 years later and uh, he writes the Roman Emperor Trajan asking advice on how to deal with a sect called Christians because Christians are moving out all over the, the known world at the moment. And uh, he writes this, The sum total of their guilt or error was at no more than the following. They had met regularly before dawn on a determined day and sung a hymn to Christ as to a God. They also took an oath not for any crime, but to keep them from theft, robbery, adultery, and not to break any promise. Now, I'd want those people as citizens <laughs> in, in my town, um, but apparently that was not a good thing. But notice that they sung a hymn to Christ as to a God. And please, just recording what happened. It's not biased. He's just saying this is a fact. There are other... Uh, pagan writers, Lucius, Celsius, Suetonius. One of these writers mentions the fact that there was um, an eclipse around about the time of uh, Jesus' death. It's in the Bible. Uh, not the eclipse, but the fact that the sun uh, darkened the sky for a while. For them, Jesus was an historical figure, like other historical figures that they talked about. And if we move into Jewish circles, we find a man called uh, Josephus and he's a, an aristocrat military general and an historian he wears three hats and he wrote a whole history of Judaism including the time when Jesus was around with Pontius Pilate let's see what he has to say again he's not a follower of Jesus at this time there appeared Jesus a wise man for he was a doer of startling deeds so I guess that's the miracles teacher of people and when Pilate because of an accusation made by the leading men among us condemned him to the cross those who had loved him previously did not cease to do so I guess that means after the resurrection they kept on believing in Jesus and he just records it as fact he also writes this in the same uh, chronicles so Ananus the high priest convened the judges of the Sanhedrin that's the Jewish council and brought before them a man named James who's James? well he's the brother of Jesus who was called the Christ there it is. You know, from all these sources, even if we didn't have the New Testament, the Gospels or Paul's writings, we could find out this just from history. I think this is amazing. The name of Jesus, the place, the time frame of his public ministry, the name of his mother, the name of one of his brothers, his fame as a teacher, a miracle worker, his title of Christ or Messiah, the time and manner of his execution, the report of Jesus' appearance to his followers after his death and all of this by those who are either opposed to the faith or at least apathetic to it. You cannot say that Jesus never existed because the pagans say that he did. What about the inside record? What about the New Testament? 
Is that a reliable source? Or did these guys, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John and Paul and the others, get together and make it all up? Well, when we're looking at the New Testament, we've got to rely on a couple of things. Uh, Have a look at this diagram here. What's important in finding out whether something is reliable or not from ancient history is the time span between the event and the first available document you have and secondly, the number of documents you've got. Now, if it's a small time span and a large number of documents, then you could say that what you've got is fairly reliable. Now, as you look there, you'll see for some of them, the time span between the original and the first document is up to 1,000 years or 1,300 years. And yet we'd say that's fairly reliable evidence, even though there might be only 10 remaining documents. Go down the bottom to the New Testament... We find the time span is really small between Jesus' death and the first gospel or Paul's writing that comes out and the number of documents we have, and these are just copies of the New Testament, uh, is above that now, it's between 25 and 30,000. It's amazing, isn't it? Now, God was very gracious in providing us with these documents. There are no originals left from anything in ancient history. But where these documents were found... uh, Sometimes in rubbish dumps, uh, sometimes in monasteries, sometimes in uh, old libraries, sometimes in modern libraries. People will go to a, a library and, and search through it and find an ancient document that's just been put there but never been recorded. And it's a fragment of the New Testament. Is Joy still here? I know Joy and Tom have been to a monastery at the base of Mount Sinai, and that's a very famous monastery. Because on one occasion there, a Bible scholar was looking uh, for original documents and he came across a monk who was just feeding the fire with some documents, throwing them in to keep himself warm. When he stopped him, he looked at him, he was throwing in bits of John's Gospel into the fire. And he got, he got hold of the rest that weren't burnt and they were very, very early copies of John's Gospel. Uh, I guess in the climate too, because it's, it's hot and dry these copies of papyrus and on the manuscripts they were written, they keep rather than being mouldy in the sort of weather that we're having at the moment. So we have very reliable evidence that the writings we have uh, are those that are very close to the original text. Now the New Testament we know is not just one source. It's not like one guy wrote all the books. We know that because they've got names to them, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John and so on. These sources were going around independently of each other before they were put together about 4th century AD. So a a group, a council got together and decided what they'd put in and what they'd leave out. And you can have a look at that and see why they left out some documents and the reason why, because they just didn't gel with the main theme of the other documents that were there. Um, let's have a look at Paul's letters for a minute Uh, Paul writes between 48 and 64 AD and Paul doesn't write about the story of Jesus he doesn't retell the story because people know the story but he does mention a few of the facts about Jesus he mentions the fact of Jesus' views on marriage of Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection of his words about the last supper and so on but what's fascinating with Paul is that in one of his letters in 1 Corinthians And chapter 15, we read this. Paul's quoting from an earlier manuscript. He's quoting from something we don't have. This would have been a creed that people were reciting 
pretty soon after Jesus died, maybe within a couple of years of Jesus' death. Paul writes, For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. And here's the creed. That Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, and then to the Twelve. So these sorts of documents and this information and this learning of material was taking place fairly close to the time of Jesus' uh, resurrection and this oral tradition kept on going till the disciples got to a position where they thought, we'd better write this down for future generations. And so the gospel started. Christians were schooled well in the stories of Jesus before the gospel writers started to write. When we get to the Gospels, I guess the obvious question we've got to ask is why four? Why didn't they just write one story of Jesus? Don't they tell the same story? Well, the answer to that is yes, they do, and no, they don't. Let's have a look. Mark is the first Gospel written, around about AD 64, 30 or so years after the death of Jesus. Um, he writes down a record of the life of teaching in Jesus as dictated by Peter. Mark put his name to it, but Peter is the author, uh, an eyewitness of Jesus. So this is a true reflection of what Jesus actually did. It's the earliest gospel. When Matthew and Luke wrote their gospels, they appear to have copied great chunks of Mark. If you look at the gospels, you'll see a story about, um, say, a blind man receiving his sight. You'll see that in uh, maybe... Uh, Matthew's Gospel, Mark's Gospel and Luke misses it out. Sometimes you'll see all three Gospels will record an incident or a miracle. Now there are chunks like that which people say, well they've copied Mark but where did they get their other material from? Well scholars believe they got it from this uh, thing that you'll see there called Q. There's an earlier source. It's, it's Q's short for quell which means source. And uh, that was around. We haven't got it now. But that's where they got their information. And Matthew and Luke also got their own source. Uh, Matthew M, Luke L, it's pretty easy to follow. And they got their material from there as well. Uh, it gets complicated. And you might be saying to yourself at this stage, hey, I just thought there were four Gospels. Why are you confusing me and making me feel uncomfortable here? Uh, isn't it all, uh, isn't it all um, like in the two heart basket now? Well, not really, because that's the way it worked in the ancient world. Uh, people wrote things down, and then you didn't plagiarise it. You just copied it. If you thought it was good, you copied it, and you, and you uh, put your name to it. And that's exactly what Luke tells us. See, when Luke wrote his Gospel, this is how he starts. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who were from the first eyewitnesses and servants of the word. So there were other things floating around that were handed down, and Luke picked them up and wrote them down in his gospel. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things that you have been taught. I guess verse 4 is the key there, isn't it? Uh, Luke just doesn't write so that you've got history. He says, I want you to know the certainty the truth of this information because it's saving truth for you. Later on we'll see that's the reason John writes his gospel as well. 
well, why have I spent the past 10 or so minutes giving a history lesson? I think because, because there's not a good enough answer in our sceptical world today. We need to know a little bit. Most people come from a position of ignorance when they ask this question, or they ask the question because they think they're going to trick you up. If you have a little bit of information, you're not going to be tricked. In fact, you're actually going to uh, put it on the other foot. There's so much misinformation out there. Uh, Jesus is a very historical figure. There's overwhelming evidence, both inside and outside the Gospels and the New Testament. And there's archaeological evidence to back it up, that Jesus lived and died. But I think the more interesting question, which I want to finish with tonight, is whether Jesus died and lived. That's where we come to our second Bible reading tonight. If you'd like to turn to uh, John chapter 20 with me, the reading that Stuart read out for us. John chapter 20. I'm not going to stick this one on the screen, so you can just have to, might have to follow it. But we're looking at this fellow, Thomas, and we'll call him a sceptic, someone who wanted everything spelled out before he believed. Uh, here's a statement. Now, Thomas, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. We know the disciples were in the upper room. They were gathered there and they were scared. They were fearful. Jesus comes. He speaks to them. He says uh, to them, uh, peace be with you. And uh, they realise who it is and says they believe. Thomas is absent. Let's have a look at Thomas to get a little bit of background, a bit of context to why he might have been absent and to what actually happened to him in the process. Again, I'll just uh, talk you through this. Don't, don't need to go back to the chapters. But in chapter 11 of the book of John, uh, there's a story of Lazarus being raised from the dead. Jesus gets the news that his friend Lazarus is ill. He waits for a couple of days till Lazarus dies. Then he says to his disciples, we're going to Judea and I'm going to raise Lazarus from the dead. The disciples say, no, don't go. Uh, all your enemies are there. You're going to die. Thomas says this. Thomas says... Um, if that's what you want to do, we'll go too. We may as well die with you. Pretty literal, isn't it? Jesus, we can't live without you. You're physically present with us. We want to be with you, even if it leads to our own death. Chapter 14 of the same Gospel of John, Jesus is talking to his disciples and he tells them, I'm going to uh, prepare a place for you. My father's house, it's got many rooms and I'm going on ahead. Uh, he said to them, you know the place where I'm going, to which one of the disciples, guess who? Thomas says, Lord, we don't know where you are going, so how can we know the way? And uh, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth and the life. So we're finding a little bit about Thomas, aren't we, here? Uh, he can't bear the thought of Jesus leaving him again. He wants a position to be clear. He wants a route mapped out. Jesus' words are not enough for him. He wants more. In the light of this, it's very interesting that the one who's missing in that upper room is Thomas, the sceptic. Luke records the same incident, and he tells us that it took some convincing for the other disciples. Jesus had to physically show them his hands and his side. He actually had a fish in front of them, so they could see that it actually went inside him and went down, and it wasn't like an x-ray. And um, Thomas wasn't there. How ironic, if anyone needed this kind of assurance, it was Thomas. And Jesus said to the gathered disciples, peace be with you, but Thomas had no peace. He just had this anxiety 
and this tension within. He didn't believe their testimony. He was willing to believe only if certain criteria were met. That is, he himself could see Jesus and touch him and poke his hands in his holes, in his side and in his hands. He wanted the kind of scientific proof we talked about before. It's what the sceptics of our world want, don't they? This is the type of proof they need. They say, I don't believe in God, I can't see him. They want Jesus to come down through the clouds every morning and wave his hand and say, hello, how are you going? Well, it's just not like that, is it? Because Jesus tells us we have reliable eyewitness evidence. We don't need that kind of witness. <coughs> Thomas is at the crossroads. Before him lies the path of faith or the path of doubt. Jesus is under no obligation to go through these tests with Thomas as he's under no obligation to do those tests with us. Just because we say we don't believe in Jesus, it doesn't mean that he has to come down and show himself to us. Because what he said is, I've left you adequate evidence. It's all there, you've just got to look in the right place. But, you know, Jesus has been with this guy for three years, and this fellow has been his disciple, and Jesus has been his master. And for that reason, Jesus meets him in his time of doubt and struggle. So it's one week later... Same place, same group, plus one. Thomas is there this time. And Jesus appears as he's done before. Same greeting, peace be with you. I wonder what Thomas is feeling. Does Thomas carry out any of his tests? Well, it doesn't tell us. So I'm assuming no. When Thomas sees Jesus, he falls on his knees and says something that no Orthodox Jew would ever say to another human being. He says, my Lord and my God. Jesus is far more than an historical figure in history, a teacher and a healer. He is God himself. He is the saviour. He is the one to be worshipped and adored and glorified. There's nothing wrong with Thomas's confession. It's a good confession. But Jesus chastises him for the way he reached it. He gently does this. He says, look, faith which results from seeing is great, but faith which results from hearing is even better. We don't have Jesus' physical presence with us now. What we do have is an accurate record of the writings about him that have been preserved through the generations by the Holy Spirit. Jesus is no fairy tale. The proof is in the reliability of the eyewitnesses. After this incident in John's Gospel, John writes, these things are written so that you might believe. Both Luke and John have the aim of saying, hey, Jesus is historical, but there's more than that. Let's jump up a level. Jesus is who he claims to be. He's God. He demands and deserves our praise and worship. One of those eyewitnesses, Peter, puts it like this when he writes in one of his letters, though you have not seen him, you love him, and even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with inexpressible and glorious joy. Might you know that joy? If you don't know it tonight, might you understand what that means? To come to a relationship with the Jesus who was alive? And if you know Jesus, might you continue to be filled with joy as you move on in that relationship with him? Why don't I pray? Heavenly Father, thank you for tonight. Thank you for your word. Thank you for those who painstakingly wrote down what was true about you. Thank you for the scriptures.
the councils that took time to work out what to put in and what to leave out. We thank you for the inspiration of the Spirit that motivated them to do this and gave them the right documents for us to read. We thank you for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We've got time for a few questions. I'm no expert in this field, but I can field some questions about it. Good, Stu. Um, you can tell us about, uh, start off by telling us something about um, one of the Gospels that wasn't included. How about you start there? All right. There's a couple of Gospels that and aren't Then someone included. else can ask a question because I'm just giving him a Dorothy who's, Dixon. Who's read the Da Vinci Code? All right. Remember the Gospel of Mary? Yeah. yeah. Um, my sources for this sermon, and apart from other books, uh, were these two. This one's sort of an abbreviated version is up the back by Lee Strobel, The Case for the Real Jesus. I think it's The Case for Christ up there. And anything by John Dixon on that subject. Um, the Gospel of Mary uh, was written much later on, around about uh, maybe 200 AD, so a long time after. The Gospels are between 60 and 90. Anything after that is pretty far removed from, from Jesus. And um, the Gospel of Mary is really, if you read it, is just a load of rubbish. Um, the Gospel of Thomas again has some peculiar things in it we think that's why it doesn't gel with the other Gospels let me read you a little bit from the Gospel of Thomas Um, Simon Peter says to uh, Mary Magdalene uh, females are not worthy of life Jesus answers look I shall guide her to make her male so that she too may become a living spirit resembling you males okay does that fit in with Jesus' teaching about women? And, yeah, no. So when you look at these other Gospels, they're great if you can make a bit of money out of them uh, by putting them on TV or writing a book about them. But if you go into the evidence and you look at what scholars say about them, they just say, oh, look, it's not even worth looking at. Um, but there are, there are quite a few. I think there's one, the Gospel of someone, the Baldy. So that was an interesting one. <laughs> Anyone else got any questions? Steve here. Uh, just wanted to ask you, um, you don't have to answer it. It's a personal question. What did you, uh, what made you preach on this tonight? Ask Stuart. Oh. <laughs> he asked me to, that's why. It's in, we're, in, we're doing a series and I ended up with this one. Yeah, so I, well, it's good. I, 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 was, um, I was teaching religious education for over 20 years and this was a topic that I often taught at school because the questions kept on coming about you know, how, can you, how can you know the Bible's true because kids thought if they defeated you there then they didn't have to do the study so that was a good point of contact <laughs>